start of this Let Hope Rise series that we're about to, to get into. Uh, we have families like the Keeses that are on vacation this morning, and there are others that aren't here because of that as well. It's just that season, and we want to pray for their safety. But we also have those that we haven't seen in a while. And just this morning, having Janie with us is a, is a joy to see her back with us visiting today, and hope we get to see her more often uh, as the days go by. And just hitchhiking on uh, the pleasure I have in having you here this morning, I just want to say uh, thank you so much to the all-star volunteer team of of cooks and cleaners again around here. Uh, You make every weekend possible. The special dinners that have taken place over the last two weekends, uh, there's ministry happening because of you. And I just want you to know that God has been using you in some incredible ways, and I want to say thank you as your preacher. Now, as we get started today, I want to draw your attention to, to the image of a chest. Now, I don't know about you or if you have, uh, if any girls do this anymore, but uh, I've shared this image with you once before. When I was growing up, it was not uncommon uh, for girls to have a chest like this in their bedroom or in their house, and they would keep things in it for the day of their marriage. Sometimes they would do lace, sometimes fine china, uh, sometimes utensils that they would use. And these were known as what? Hope chest. Uh, it expressed what they were hoping for in a relationship, what they were longing for, uh, what they were dreaming of one day. Shortly after we moved here uh, nine years ago, Cheryl and I, we, we got this fancy weight machine from the Fazzini's. And uh, it was kind of like a hope chest for Cheryl because she hoped that one day I would have a chest because of of using that. But, But looking forward and anticipating a time in life, there were many young women who would have these chests for the day that they would get married. And they would keep heirlooms and things to pass on even to their children someday. Some of you realize deeply that as human beings we are irrepressible hopers. Hope is why students go to college. Hope is why young couples get engaged. Hope is why investors invest in real estate. Hope is why there are still people that buy things like thigh masters. I mean, hope is why many of you have been lifelong Cleveland Brown fans or Cincinnati Bengals fans. Uh, We are just irrepressible hopers. And the thing that I, I want you to think about as we start off this series today is this question. Where have you put your hope? Where have you put your hope? Well, the things that you're hoping for, the things that, that you're dreaming about and that you're longing for. And I guess the question that I really want to ask along with that is, have you put it in the right box? You know, if you've got kids at your house, I'll bet you have one of these as well. Uh, remember the first time you opened a checking account and back when they used to give you things like this? Or the first time you had a, a piggy bank as a kid and you'd shake your pennies and quarters and nickels and dimes and that. And, and from an early age, there are those who came to, to get addicted to that sound. And they grew up thinking, you know, the box that I ought to put my hope in, it ought to be in, in the finance box. One day, if I just make enough, if I have the right job, if I save enough, then I won't have to worry anymore, and I and my family could be financially secure. And yet many of you found in these economic times that we've been living in in the last few years that the real estate and and stock markets can tank. They can go down as fast as they go up, and you wonder, did I put my hope in the right box? Some of you, you didn't get hit hard at all by the financial situation of of these last few years. And you might have more in your life right now than you have ever had before. 
But even then, there's still something that's, that's missing. And you're empty and you're, and you're miserable. Perhaps you're fighting more in your family. Or maybe you're drinking more or escaping more and you're wondering, did I have my hope in the right box? Do you remember the first time you, you brought one of these home? I like this one. I put it up there for Sharon Jennings. Sharon, this is your trophy, okay, for running Ron around all those years. Okay, um, but, but how good it is to have one of these, to put it on your, your living room shelf or a shelf in your bedroom, all because of the track team or the football team or the baseball team, or, or maybe it was a dance recital, or maybe it was an academic achievement or, or a debate club or 4-H or something, whatever it was, but it felt good, and so you decided, because of the way you felt, I'm going to put my hope in the achievement box, and you went after the dream. You got the education, you got the position, you climbed up the ladder of success, and people around you started to look at you and define success by you. You're a high achiever, but you know at night, when you lay your head on the pillow, there's still a hole that's deep inside of you, and you wonder, well, did I, did I put my hope in the right box? And then anybody remember the first time you got one of these from somebody, you, you fell in love, and you thought, That somebody loves me. Somebody sees worth and value in me. Somebody noticed me. And it made you think, maybe maybe that's where I ought to put my hope. And so you invested and you put your hope in relationships. You went on a desperate search for the right person in your life to fulfill you. And that's the box you put your hope in. And then maybe you found out that you found the wrong right person. In fact, some of you, you found that you found the wrong right person two, three, four times down the line. And every time it hurt. And you've been through some busted relationships. Some of you have been through some busted marriages or two. And you wonder if you put your hope in the right box. Where are you placing your hope? I know young people that are putting their hope in their health and fitness Others, even as senior adults, that are putting their hope in hobbies and interests, and many people who are putting their hope in their personal image. Well, that's what I believe is referenced today. If you have your Bibles open again to the book of Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning in the 13th verse. Luke 24, verse 13. It's on a Sunday following the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Two of his friends, two of his disciples, they found themselves struggling and losing hope. Maybe wondering if they put their hope in the right box. You see, circumstances in their life in the previous 48 hours had not gone the way that they planned. And they're answering what I've heard many of you say to me personally, sometimes in an email, sometimes in a text. You've made the comment, what do you do, Bill? When life just isn't turning out the way you plan it. When things just don't go the way you plan. And we come to Luke 24, 13, and these two disciples are walking down a rocky road. Maybe it's like this rocky road. And this walk becomes one of the most famous walks in Scripture. And here's how it begins. Luke 24, 13. Now that same day, referring to the third day, to Sunday, two of them were walking to a village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're walking, and they've got seven miles ahead of them. Anybody know in Greek what, what, what it means when it says seven-mile walk? It, it literally means it's seven miles, okay? You actually have seven miles ahead of you. How long does it take an average person to walk seven miles? 
Well, if you're walking about three and a half miles per hour, the average person, it would take you about two hours. So they're on this two-hour walk. In verse 14, it says they were talking with each other about everything that happened. Now, we're going to learn later on in this passage as we're reading that one of them is named Cleopas. Now, Cleopas is a man's name. We don't know the name of the other disciple. In fact, when I read this account, I wonder if this other disciple is a woman. Because it says they were talking to each other about what had happened. And I'm thinking two guys walking down the road for two hours, they're not going to be talking about things. There had to be a relationship between these two. And an interesting thing happens. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. As these two walk along, they are despondent over the death of Jesus, and Jesus walks up behind them, inserts himself unknowingly into their conversation in a manner that I I don't quite understand for reasons I don't fully comprehend, but they don't recognize right away who he is. The one that they're they're mourning is standing in their midst and the light just doesn't click on. These two discouraged disciples on their seven-mile walk, they'd left everything to follow Jesus. They put all their hope in that box and now he's buried. To them, he's gone and it's all over. They thought he was going to be the one who would free them from Roman oppression. They were fed up with the Roman soldiers walking their streets, their sidewalks, walking in their yards, shopping in their shops, and they just wanted them gone. Their tax system was overbearing. Their presence was an insult. And they had thought that this Jesus, this smart, sharp, intuitive, impressive, supernatural leader, he's going to be the one that's going to deliver us and free us from all of that. And so Jesus, whom they did not recognize, asked them in verse 17, it says, he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's like they're asking, what planet are you from? What rock did you crawl out from under? And and I think it would be funny at that point if Jesus says, well, since you ask, um, let me tell you about the rock that I just came out from under. But, But they're incredulous. How could you be here and not know what's going on? Read on. What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be, cruci- to be sentenced to death, and, and then you could hear the tone in their voice just drop. And they crucified him. And here's what they say next, verse 21. But we'd hoped, we had hoped, he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. See, those words, but we had hoped. Sometimes that's the box we put our hope in. Jesus was going to be the one, and my guess is, is that there is not a person in this room who at some point in their life has not made a statement that begins with those four words. In fact, I believe everyone has said or will say, but we had hoped. Maybe you've lamented like Job in the Old Testament in Job 30, verse 26. He said, yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, well, then came darkness. 
Or you said like Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.18, So I say my splendor is gone and all that I'd hoped from for the Lord. Some of you said it this week. We'd hoped that the cancer was finally gone from our family. We'd hoped that this was going to be the dream job, the dream career. But we had hoped that this marriage was going to last forever. But we had hoped that our son, our daughter, were finally getting their act together. But we hoped we would have a child by now. But we had hoped we could retire by now. We could relax by now. But, but we had hoped that we would be able to hold on to our house for just one more month, one more year. Our business for one more month, for one more year. We had hoped, and yet now we wonder if our hope was in the wrong place. These men are devastated, and they're concerned about the day, the future, because everything they'd hoped in was gone. To them, Jesus is still in the tomb. And how does Jesus respond to them? Look what he says in Scripture. He doesn't say, guys, I feel your pain. He doesn't say, guys, I feel so bad with you. Let me say a little prayer for you. He doesn't say the Ohio State motto, it is what it is. No. His response, rather, in verse 25 is, how foolish you are. Thanks for the response, the sensitivity. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures, and it was all concerning himself. Jesus started teaching them. Here they are on the seven-mile walk. And again, how long does Jesus have to bring this message to them? Two hours. A two-hour sermon. Literally in the flesh, walking with them. You know, buckle in, folks. And we don't know the exact detail of what Jesus taught them. But we do know that as he went through the scriptures, he taught them about himself. And when they approach Emmaus, they ask Jesus because they still don't know him. And it's late. And it's not like today where there would be a a Motel 6 with the light on for him. For Jesus to spend the night. The day is almost over. And so in verse 28 it says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us because it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And he stayed with them. I love that. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us along the road and opened the scriptures to us? And the next few verses talk about how these two disciples, they ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem to gather to the disciples and say, guys, Jesus is alive. We walk, we walk with him. We, we talk with him. For seven miles, for two hours, we listened to him speak. We broke bread with him afterwards. He is alive, and we have seen him. One of the most amazing walks in all of Scripture. And I realize... For myself and for you, each one of us, we're walking along a road this morning in our journey. And I'll bet that the road that you're walking on looks like the rocky road that we had in the picture back here. Some of you would say, Bill, that's a pretty good picture of my circumstance. Because it's, it's a painful walk. There's 
struggling in my life. There's suffering. There's brokenness. And you know, there's two ways to look at a broken road like that. One, you can look back behind you at all the circumstances you came out of or, and all the pain that you've gone through, or you can look to what lies ahead of you. Some of you are looking at things right now, and I've been praying for the last couple of days about the victims and the families and the shooting out in Maryland. I was reading again this past week about how Rick and Kay Warren are, are still recovering from the suicide of their son, Matthew. I think about the difficult road ahead for them. I think about the difficult road ahead for this community and and for this country with all that's going on. And I want to think about the road behind us for a little bit. Just think about the past. And let me ask you this question. What do you see looking back at you in the mirror these days? What about the person you're looking at? One of the reasons the disciples were so discouraged and down is because they felt like failures. They're full of regret right now because when things got tough, they took off. They they ran. When Jesus needed them the most, they bailed on him. And I'm sure they're thinking, can you believe how easily we caved in? Can you believe how easily we gave up? And you and I need to consider what we see in the mirror because our hope is directly tied to our identity. Wayne Smith, who retired from preaching uh, in in Lexington, a young man by the name of Mike Bro took over for him. And and Mike wrote a book a number of years ago called Identity Theft. And uh, we get all concerned in our day and age about identity theft. You hear about people uh, having their personal information stolen, their credit card information all the time. Cybercrime is just off the charts uh, in the country now. But Mike looks at that term identity theft from a different standpoint. He, He says this. There's a far worse kind of identity theft, and that is when we're mugged by the mirror. It's when you live life by the distorted, confused, and damaged identity that the world puts upon you. And the truth is that many of us look in the mirror, and we feel defined by our past. We feel defined by our mistakes, defined by circumstances and events that happen to us in our lives. If I was defined, friends, by the things that I had done in my past, honestly, I would not be standing up here right now. We've all got a past. What do you see when you look in the mirror? What is your identity? Some of you, you grew up in homes where you were devalued. The words that were said to you, they they cut deep and they, they damaged your sense of identity. It wasn't uncommon for some of you to hear repeated, you're not smart enough. You're not fast enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not good enough, you're not interesting enough. You're too fat, too skinny, too weak, or you'll never amount to anything. Some of you grew up in homes where you were abused, verbally, emotionally, physically. Some of you were hurt in unspeakable sexual ways, and some of you carry that shame from your past. Things that happened to you. And then some of you carry shame from the past because of things that you actually did. But that's not your identity. You see, your identity is something far more beautiful. And I want to share these two verses with you. In fact, I want to challenge you to read this out loud with me, if you would, this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Would you read this out loud with me? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, 
The new is here. And now the next verse. 1 Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love those verses. And I want you to notice those prepositional phrases, in Christ, in His great mercy, He's given us a new birth. And what does that mean? Immediately our minds go back to that, that dark evening where Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3.3 3 and said to Him, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And he's not talking about something weird. He's not talking about reincarnation. He's talking about a new identity, a new source of birth. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you become born again, and your past does not define you. Who you belong to, that's what defines you. And you start to learn, I, have a, I am a new creation in Christ. I am a much-loved son of the Most High God. I am a much-loved daughter of the Most High Living God. He defines who I am. He defined my worth by giving His only Son to die on the cross for me. And I don't have to be mugged by the mirror anymore. I have a new identity in Jesus Christ who made a staggering sacrifice for me. You say, what does it mean to get a new identity? What does a new birth really look like? Well, sometimes our circumstances don't change, but we certainly can. In fact, I want you to see it in the example of a man named John. I want you to watch this video. So the night started out uh, just kind of like any other night, just at at the bar, partying, uh, drinking, and doing a bunch of uh, drugs and uh, the night ended up getting out of hand. Uh, Before I knew it, I killed a man and and, uh, a couple days later, I was in jail facing a life sentence for first degree murder. I'm in county jail and uh, didn't really accept it at first, so I lived pretty recklessly. And in that recklessness, it, it landed me a single cell. That's where I found Jesus Christ, is with everything stripped down, living in a, in a concrete cell with nothing but a Bible. And uh, started asking the major questions of life and purpose. And in asking those questions, it led me to the conclusion that there must be a creator in all this or else none of it makes sense and and in all that I, I said my first prayer and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and by this time it's been about two years and we're still going forward with the with the idea of uh, medical defense and they're telling me it could possibly get me 20 40 years and uh, as I'm studying scripture, as I'm learning about the word of God and, and what it means to be a man of God, um, I see the, the high premium on truth. You know, it's an attribute of God himself. So um, how can I go with my plea of not guilty and try to defend myself when I know I did what they're accusing me of? The answer was obvious. It's just whether or not I was going to accept it. So I accepted it. And I said, okay, I'm going to plead guilty to this and accept the life sentence that I have coming. And 
save a lot of pain for the family and the trial and all that. But so I went ahead and did that. And my lawyers, they decided to um, <laughs> argue against me. They said, uh, what are you doing here? We, we've done all this work. We're ready to go to bat for you. We believe that you shouldn't be in prison for life. And then I just started witnessing to my lawyers. I told them uh, I'm the one who has to look in the mirror every day, uh, not you. So after my sentence was passed down and I received life without parole, which uh, I had coming and I knew it was coming, uh, I was being escorted out of the courtroom and my victim's sister yelled, Jonathan, and I turned around and, and I said, yeah. She just, uh, she said, hey, you go in there and help people. And so that's what I've been doing, is doing my best to make make that a reality and um, it, it really it affected me in a large way and no words can communicate how much that has impacted my day-to-day -day living here just knowing that in the words of my victim sister is uh, is redemption in that I'm not a wasted life that you know because I, I took somebody even though I took somebody that she loved dearly she um, she saw that beauty could still come from ashes. He said, Bill, come on. In prison for first degree murder. And yet he can say in his cell, in the ministry he has there, that he's never been freer. He said, Bill, that, that's an extreme. I can't accept that. But let me say, if you have trouble accepting that, and you're never going to hear Jesus from the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they committed murder. You're never going to understand as the words fall from the lips of the soldier who was overseeing the whole thing, surely this man was the Son of God. Forgiveness is to be found. Identity is to be found. I am not a worthless individual. When I look in the mirror, I see someone who is redeemed. And our past doesn't define us. And as he said on the video, God can bring beauty out of the ashes. He has a purpose for life. And, and you may not be in prison, but maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel that right now in your life, your circumstances have got you trapped, and you don't know how you're going to be free. And wouldn't it be something today if some of you said, God, I, I just want that new identity. I want to invite Jesus Christ into my life. I need you to forgive me. I need the new birth that the Bible speaks of. Well, there's certain ways that we can look at things here, and I want you to, to realize that sometimes we need that transformed perspective on life, and that's the last point. Every day I, I come to work, I put on glasses. Uh, when I put on my glasses, I get a transformed perspective on my sermon as, as I've typed it out and on you, and I'm thinking, what if we all uh, gain a new perspective on things? These two disciples in Scripture, they needed a new perspective. They needed hope on this seven-mile walk with Jesus. And they're followed by that time of, of breaking and bread and prayer. And, and they suddenly realize who he is. And I love their question when they ask, weren't our hearts burning within us? You know, it's, it's true. As he came back to them, there was something that needed to change about their thinking. There's this interesting verse in Ephesians 4.23 that says that we're to be made new in the attitude of our minds. 
See, being made new in an attitude, it gives us that, that new perspective. And there's two ways that you can do this. There's an attitude in your mind that can rob you of hope and can lead to discouragement. Or there's an attitude that will let hope rise. Let me ask you this morning, how many of you remember Winnie the Pooh? Anybody fans of Winnie the Pooh? The, the little snuggly uh, bear. There is this hopeless character in Winnie the Pooh. And you might remember him. His name is... Thank you for noticing me. Yeah, it's, it's Eeyore. And there are many of us who look at the circumstances in our life and all we see are dead ends. Sadness, hopeless circumstances. We look at them through what we can call an Eeyore lens. And we have this destructful mindset that says, my discouragement, it's going to last forever. It's permanent. You, you ever look at things that way? Maybe you've looked at a difficult marriage and, and you think, you know what? This marriage is never going to get better. This depression that I'm going through, I'm never going to get over it. This is who I am. I'm never going to be lifted out of this darkness. Some of you said, my kids, they will never grow up. I'll never find another job. I think it was the mindset of the disciples on the road to Emmaus that day. They could not see the future getting any better any brighter, all they could think was things are never going to change now. And yet it did in a matter of two hours. Those of you that have grieved the death of someone that you love or those of you that have gone through the heartbreak of a divorce, you know there's a time in your life when you thought it's never going to get better. It's permanent. And yet within a couple of years, joy returned, new vision returned, and you realized it wasn't permanent. There's a second thing our destructive Eeyore mindset says, and that is uh, it's going to undermine everything that happens in my life from this point on. Let's say that you invite somebody out on a date, and that person turns you down. That's never fun to feel that rejection. And some people will take that, and they'll turn it into this pervasive situation. Well, I guess I'm just not attractive. I guess nobody's ever going to, to be interested in me, ever. But it may just be that one person did not find you attractive. Maybe she really did have to floss her cat's teeth that night. You don't know. (laughs) But it doesn't define your attractiveness or everything about you. You see, the message of hope that comes from Scripture is is that no matter what Eeyore-type people think, no matter what those circumstances seem to teach us, it doesn't last forever, and it doesn't have to be pervasive in our everyday experience. That's why Romans 8.28 is one of the most beloved passages in Scripture because it says we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Does it say that all things are good? No, it does not say that. There's a lot of bad things that happen to some really good people. But we do know that God works all things, even the bad, together for the good of those who love Him. He can take the worst and turn it into the best of things. Some of you here this morning, you wear a cross around your neck. And back in the first century, that was an instrument of torture and of death. The equivalent today would be if you went around wearing a little tiny electric chair around a necklace or a little tiny hypodermic needle. How weird would you think someone was to see that? But there are those of you that wear the crosses. Some of you wear more than one cross around your neck. Why? Because God took the worst thing imaginable in the history of the world and he turned it in to an act of beauty and an act of grace and the most beautiful thing. 
because God works together for the good of those who love him. You see, Bill, but does that include bankruptcy? Yeah. Does that include divorce? Yes. Does it include illness? Yes. Does it include problems? Yes. The loss of a loved one? Yes. I listened this past week to a woman named Robin give her testimony. I believe she shared at the North American Christian Convention years ago, uh, but she received that call that no parent ever wants to get. Her daughter was killed by a hit-and-run driver, and she prayed, Lord, why her? Why not me? And she prayed, take me too. It was a horrific event, and she didn't get out of bed pretty much for two years. Except for two things. One, she looked at the son that she yet had to raise. And even though she was hurting as deeply as she was, she still believed God was there. That God loved her and God still had a plan for her life. And she said people said the things they always say. She's in a better place. And I knew that. But that didn't help me. They would say, she's where we all want to be. And I knew that was true as well. But I just held on to the reality that God was there. And one of my best friends came and he began to show me every day the consistent care and love of God in the flesh. That individual would go on to become her husband. And she said, without that example, I don't know what I would have done. Whose example are you? For two men walking seven miles down a rocky road, looking at what's behind them, thinking about what could possibly be ahead of them, thinking there's no hope for them. Their whole life was transformed. They begin, but we had hoped. And they didn't realize that that day, hope, it was right under their nose. It was right in their midst and in their presence. And I just want to say for you this morning, maybe you came in here and you're thinking that your downfall is going to be your finances. Or maybe you put your hope in the hope chest of your achievements or relationships or a number of things. And I want you to hear that there's one who will come alongside you. And when you say, will you go home with me? He will say, absolutely. I'll stay with you. And he will share with you by his spirit, through the word, and through his presence. But friends, it's a seven-mile journey. Some of you, you've only traveled six miles, and you're ready to give up. There's one more to go. Some of you feel so discouraged and despondent today, and it's only six miles. There's one more to go, and if you'll go that final mile and accept the Lord's offer, friends, you'll realize what the Scripture says is true in Luke 1, 78. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those who live in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. But will you walk that mile with Jesus? I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. And I want to pray for us as a church family and you as an individual. And friends, if you're ready to accept Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, I want you to come. You're ready to transfer all that you've been putting into those hope chests of your life into Him then I want you to come. Maybe you're looking for a church home or maybe you need someone just to bow the knee and pray with you. Friends, we are a family. That's what we're here for. But before we sing and before you come, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's never about our righteousness. All the good things we could do, the right things we could say, the the acts we could perform. 
That's never going to get us out of the, the prison of this life. It's never going to get us out of the prison or the chains of our own sin. It takes you and the invitation for you to come into our life in flesh and blood to take the penalty for all of the wrong we've committed. The circumstance of this life might not immediately get better, but the reality of this life will. Because you came to give us life and that more abundantly. And Father, I just want to I pray for the individual here this morning. They're tired. They're weary. They're, they're ready to, to move, to quit, to give up. But Father, would you give them the strength to walk one more mile? Because if they do, they'll find the strength to run seven more to tell others that you're alive. You're alive to them. You've taken their life from darkness to light, from death to eternal life. Father, for the ones that are looking for a church home and, and they're ready for their witness to shine with others here, would you give them the courage to make this their church home? And Father, for the ones that are struggling, whatever it may be, Father, would you prepare the hearts of the elders and of this church family to pray for them? Would you help them step forward and just give a voice to their need? But Father, we're here for you because we need you in all things in Jesus' name.